One of the most memorable verses in the Old Testament goes like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever wondered why God did not compare us to cats or horses? Why did it have to be a sheep? This is Truth Encounter, and we are in the conclusion of Moses' five sermons recorded in Deuteronomy. As we turn in our Bibles to chapter 32, our study leader Dave Wurtson shares a memory from his childhood. My dad was born in Brooklyn, and one day his father came to his mother and said, I just bought a farm in New Jersey. Now, I wish for the Wurtson inheritance that my grandfather had held on to the farm, but he had not, because I would be a multimillionaire if he had, but he didn't. My grandfather had a farm for one year, and my dad moved from the city of Brooklyn out to the country. At that time, New Jersey was country. It still has a lot of country. I'll never forget that they bought a horse. My dad had this old, blokey horse. And my dad used to talk about as a kid of about 10 years of age, he'd ride this horse, and it was just a great, great time, and he fed it hay, and this city boy was learning about horsemanship. Well, one day, my dad came home from school, and the horse was gone. I mean, totally gone. I mean, it had disappeared. So my grandfather came home from work, and my dad says, you know, don't worry about the horse. It's really, really hard to lose a horse. Somebody will find the horse, and I know the horse will come back. So stop crying, you know, little Casper. My dad's name wasn't Jack back then. It was Casper. And uh, little Casper stopped crying. With a name like that, you know, who's not going to cry? So uh, my dad waited. A week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by, and sure enough, the horse came back. In fact, it not only came back, but it brought another horse with it. And so they had little horses after the horse got back. So it was hard to lose a horse. My dad also had a cat. They had a mangy cat. How many of you have some mangy cats that are around your, your house, okay? My dad and grandfather had this mangy cat, and they did everything to get rid of that cat. I mean, you know, they, they, they would take it for brief rides in the country and dump it out. When they got back, sure enough, the cat could get back. They would leave it at neighbors' houses. They would, they would starve it. Any of you that are cat lovers, you know, I really don't do this. This was my father and grandfather, all right? <laughs> Finally, my dad and grandfather decided they'd have had it. They were going to take care of the cat once and for all. So they took this cat. They drove about 60 miles out into the country towards Pennsylvania. They put the cat in a gunny sack, tied it up, threw it in a well, and they went back home again. My dad saying, Psh. they went on, they did several shopping things, they came back, and would you believe it? When they got home, that mangy cat was sitting on the front porch, wagging its tail. I mean, it's hard to get rid of a cat. It's hard to get rid of a horse. But you know what? It's not hard to get rid of a sheep. In fact, sheep are notorious for getting lost. Up at Word of Life, we used to have several sheep. These farmers from down in New Jersey would bring their sheep up. And sure enough, during the summer, one of those little lambs would wander out. And you could not find them to save your life. Have you ever noticed that when the prophet Isaiah wanted to talk about us, that he didn't say, all we like horses have gone astray? Because if he would have said that, you know, there's a good possibility a horse would have found its way back home. And he didn't say, all we like cats 
have gone astray. I mean, it cats independent. It can take care of itself. And, you know, it can even exist out in the wild. So it didn't say all we like cats have gone astray. What did it say? All we like everybody. Sheep have gone astray. You know why? Because you're like what? Every one of us is like a sheep. The passage of scripture that we're going to talk about is very, very important because there's a good possibility that sometime during your life, sometime as you go out into life, there's a very strong possibility that some of you, if not all of you, are going to wander away. You're going to get lost. You're going to get off the path. You're going to leave the rest of the flock. You're going to get out there. You're going to, you're going to encounter thorn bushes. You might face some wolves. You might face some lions. In other words, you're going to get out there and you're going to get lost, really lost. And what I want you to do is when you're lost, really lost, I want you to remember what I teach you this morning. I'm going to teach you a song. I'm not going to sing it to you because we're going to recite it. Moses gave a song to the children of Israel. We began studying it the last time I taught you. I want to pick us up there again in Deuteronomy chapter 32. We introduced the unforgettable song. And remember that I told you that music is like a syringe that's loaded. And the songwriter injects the content of that song into your very veins. And that's what's happening in this song. The Lord, as Moses gets ready to pass on into eternity, the Lord wants Israel to never forget... The fact that they tend to wander. In fact, the old songwriter wrote, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord that I love. And that could be a thematic statement. It could be a purpose statement of what Deuteronomy chapter 32 is about. Moses wants to get across to his people, and he wants to get across to us that before their history even really gets going, before they enter the land, he tries to lay out for them a panorama of what's going to happen, of the tendencies that he sees in their life. And he's not just someone making guesses. He's an inspired prophet that's giving incisive information about what's wrong with his people and what they're going to tend to do. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 summarizes the entire book of Deuteronomy that we've been spending so many hours together studying. And the message of this song, the message of this song is absolutely vital to our life. In fact, the song's going to end with Moses telling the people, this is not just an empty song. This is not just a, an easy light song. This song is not empty. It is full of life. In fact, Moses will say, this song is your life. And I'm dead serious. This song could be the difference between life and death for me. And for you. Now, the song begins with an address to God. It's a call for all of heaven and earth to listen to the song. So, in other words, we're not just gathering in Fair Park with a bunch of Dallasites. We're not just gathering in a big concert hall. God calls through the prophet Moses all of heaven and earth to come and listen to this song. Look how he begins. It says at the end of chapter 31, And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Then he begins, verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. What Moses is saying is that heaven and earth, which represents God's creation, is called to be the audience to this song. And I want to tell you what Moses means by that. Moses means that there is a creator. Life is not chance. It's not probabilities. You can't decide what's right and what's wrong in your own heart any more than you can decide that you're going to invent a new primary color. 
I just read an article by a philosopher this week, and it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek article about a society that decided it was going to invent new primary colors. In other words, they invented chartreuse, and they were going to make that a primary color. But every idiot knew that chartreuse wasn't one of the primary colors. It was a blending of the primary colors. In other words, all of us know that the very definition of primary colors is their primary, and all other colors can be derived from them, so you can't have any other primary colors. And he talked about a society that denied that reality, and they just denied color. And that's kind of where we're living right now. The idea is that you can make up the way you want to live. I can make up the way I want to live. None of us are responsible. And I've got news for you. That's just not true. What Moses is saying is that the creator of heaven and earth that's going to give us this, that's going to give us this song has created reality, just like he created primary colors. And you can't invent new morality. The whole idea of a new morality is a misnomer. Because there's only one morality. Morality means that there's a standard. It means that there's a way to live. It means there's a right, which also means there is a what? There's a wrong. And you can't change that. Just like you can't change primary colors. What Moses is doing is he's calling heaven and earth against his audience. He says, I want you to listen, heaven and earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying if those that are listening to this song in Israel go against it, if they choose to reject what he's teaching them, then they're going to be bucking right up against creation. They're going to be bucking up against the way things are. I've often used the illustration with you. You can get up on the top of the Twin Towers in New York City, and you can jump out the window, and you can say, I can fly, I can fly, I can fly. I love the exhilarating experience of flying. I've seen it on Superman. You know, man, I can do it. And you can defy gravity for a few seconds, and then you're going to go splat. Because gravity really is true. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it. It doesn't make any difference whether you argue against it. It doesn't make any difference what you believe about gravity. Gravity will influence you when you're up in the air. And you'll fall like a rock. And that's what Moses means when he calls heaven and earth to be a witness. You see, this is the writer that began with Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And no matter what your society might tell you, that you're just here by probabilities, there isn't any creator, you can decide your own destiny, you can decide your own primary colors of morality, you can decide to live any way you want to. I've got news for you, you can't. There is reality. There is a heaven and there's an earth. There's God's universe, and he's the one that designed it. And if you break his moral principles, you will be the one that falls out of the sky. Not the rules, not the regulations. That's what Moses wants to get across to a society that's full of relativism, that's full of all kinds of make-believe about what's right and what's wrong. So Moses begins the psalm calling heaven and earth to witness against his people. He says this, Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like the dew like showers on a new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Now, I want to retranslate this verse in light of the storms that we've had this past week. Notice that Moses doesn't say, let my teaching fall like a Texas thunderstorm and let my words descend, you know, like a, like a total flood where, where the heavens just open up and just dump it out in tremendous sheets of rain. That's not the picture here, friend. What happens when thunderstorms roll in over the Texas plains and just dump sheet upon sheet upon sheet of water upon the ground? What happens to the tender plants then? Well, the tender plants that we plant up here in Dallas end up in the Gulf of Mexico, down near Houston somewhere. So that's not the image here. You see, flood 
And what we've experienced in the last week or so, the floods are destructive. And the Bible does use the idea of floods as being a statement of the judgment of God. But here the imagery is different. Here the imagery is what we experienced early in the week where we had two or three days. It's kind of like what they have in London constantly. Just kind of a steady drizzle. You ever been in a place like that? You know, where it's just constantly drizzling. When I went to high school in Florida, it used to, it used to drizzle every afternoon. In fact, you could almost time your watch. It not only drizzled, it rained pretty good, but, but every single day there was a gentle rain during some of the seasons of the year. And it just made all of the place where we were filled with greenness. And that's the imagery that's used here. It says, let my teaching fall like the rain. You've all heard the music, you know, listen to the rhythm of the falling rain. That's the feel of this verse. You know what Moses is saying? He's saying, my teaching needs to be coming upon your life like a green plant receives the rain. The picture you want to have is a little tender plant that's growing up out of the ground. And the sweet, gentle rains come. Not powerful that blow the little plant away, but sweet, gentle rains come. And, it, and, and, and the plant is able to take in that moisture and is able to synthesize it with, it with the energy given from the sunlight and taking the nutrients from the ground and the little plant is able to grow. And Moses compares his teaching to that sweet, gentle rain or the mist, the dew that comes up early in the morning and settles on the green leaves of plants. Some of you that take care of plants, you even plant to make sure they stay moist. That's the picture here. You're doing all of those things so that your plants can be the picture of health. As we begin this song, because this song gets into some real devastating judgment, but as we begin this song, I want you to realize that Moses' intent is not to destroy us. It's not to cause us to go into death. It's to cause us to live. And these imageries of, of this gentle plant and, and new grass just coming up and the sweet dew of heaven coming down upon it is imagery to tell you that God really cares about you. You see, the teaching that we're hearing as we study the Word of God is teaching that will make you grow. It'll make you live. It'll take tender lives and help them to live safe. It's a very powerful imagery. In other words, whatever judgment might fall in this book, God really cares about every one of us. God doesn't want you to destruct. In fact, God wants you to live. We have a tendency to get angry with God when things start to go wrong. He's the last person in the world to get angry with. Because he's the one person that wants you to live. He's the one person that can give you the instructions to help you to live. And so Moses begins calling heaven and earth to witness, but he gives these beautiful imagery of may his teaching, may his words, may his commandments be like a sweet, gentle rain and like the life-giving dew that causes your life to grow. You know, as you sit here, as you hear the word of God taught, you're going to have to decide what kind of a plant you're going to be. You see, there's some plants that respond to the moisture. There are some plants that allow it to soak into them. And they allow it to become part of the fabric of their life. It's a very powerful imagery. And they grow in greenness. But you know, there's other plants that resist the rain in Moses' thought. There's other plants that, that don't let the Word of God. They, they can just hear the Word of God being taught, but it never soaks in. You see, just like a plant, if a plant has a spray on it, like a vinyl spray or a plastic spray that, that keeps it from being able to take in the moisture, what happens to the plant? It dies. Some of you, I'm afraid, have a vinyl spray of your life. It's like you have urethane all over your leaves. As the sweet rain of God's word comes down, as the dew begins to settle in your life, it doesn't penetrate. Nothing happens. That's what's wrong with Israel. That's what we're going to find out. Israel had the greatest prophetic witness that, in, that, that the world has ever seen. 
Moses was the greatest prophet that the world had ever seen other than Jesus Christ. And yet we're going to find out that the history of Israel is not a history of growing up like a beautiful green plant and growing to vitality and, and beautiful wholeness. Instead, they resisted it. And so it's a great warning to my own life. It's a great warning to your life. You see, as, as I hear the Word of God taught, even as we're opening up the Word of God today, there's no guarantee that that, that moisture of God's life-giving Word is going to penetrate my life. You've got to open your heart. You've got to open your ears. You've got to soften that heart so that the moisture can penetrate into your very soul. And Moses is very concerned about that because he knows the hardness of these people. And I pray with all my heart that like, when you're getting ready to hear the word of God taught, it's very important to open your heart to that word, to pray and ask God to speak to you and, and to confess sin that might be blocking that relationship. Because tremendous spiritual warfare goes on even while I'm teaching right now at this moment. Some of you can get in real resistance mode. You can be angry and you can be upset and you can be thinking about a million and one different things and the rain's falling but nothing happens in your life. That's a very dangerous place to be. Because the word of God that should bring a great, sweet, life-giving force to us can become something that doesn't do anything to us and then eventually floods of judgment and God's chastisement will try to reach us as the psalm develops. We're going to find that out. Moses begins in verse 3 the way that all good worship music should begin. Moses' focus is not on the horizontal relationship with his people, but he begins heaven and earth to witness, and then he focuses on this vertical relationship with God. It's very important for all of us, just like in the Lord's Prayer, in all of our worship, you always begin, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You always begin with that vertical relationship, and we learned that when we studied the Lord's Prayer in its teaching. On, as the Lord taught us a paradigm of prayer. Look at verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will proclaim. What does he mean? He's saying, I'm going to holler out. I'm going to preach. I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to lift up my voice, and I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. And whenever you do this, I want you to think about this. It struck me last week being with the college kids down in Austin. I don't think Mary and I have ever been with a group that worshipped quite so hard quite so powerfully. And I think one of the reasons for that is there were several kids, like one girl drove up from youth and says, you know, Dave, a year and a half ago, I, was, I didn't have any idea what was going on. I didn't know Jesus at all. I was just living out in the world. I didn't have any idea what Jesus Christ had done for me. And I came to this group and she got saved. And it's like it's all just totally brand new. But all these kids are in an environment, they're in an environment where like in, in almost every one of their classes, someone will challenge them about their faith. And someone will try to attack them and try to get them to turn away from Jesus. And these kids constantly have to stand up and say, yeah, I am one of those Jesus people. And they have to explain the difference between Jesus as revealed in the scripture and make some of the TV evangelists that the students are mocking in class from time to time. In other words, it's like this constant warfare. There's a, there's a pressure about immorality, about, you know, it's just a free thing. You know, free love is really in down there. So it's like when these kids get together... Like Saturday night, they were just going to have a fun time. Saturday night, they were just going to do some skits and stuff, which they did do from about 6.30 till 9. But they said, listen, some of our classmates have driven all the way out here. They want to hear Dave preach. Now, I have never had a bunch of college kids at a retreat say, we need more meetings. You know, we need to get into the Word of God more. In fact, they went to their leader and petitioned him. They said, listen, our students have come out. We've got to have a worship service tonight. So they had me teach them another hour from 9 to 10, but that was just the beginning. You see, they were just getting cranked up. 
You see, at 10 o'clock, when Mary and I were ready to go to bed, they said, oh, no, no, we're nocturnal animals. Man, we're just getting started here. So they worshiped from 10 to 12. Two hours. I mean, they sang, and they sang, and they sang, and they sang. And it was incredible. Now, different ones. A guy would get up, grab a guitar, and say, man, the Lord, I wasn't going to do this. But the Lord's really spoken to my heart about temptation. And like one of the guys, the first night I was there, he said, I don't think God is good. Right while I was preaching. That was my point. From Genesis chapter 3, that the first sin was to doubt God's goodness. This guy raised his hand and says, I doubt God's goodness. But we had an interesting discussion. Saturday night, he said, man, the Lord's really, really spoken to me. God is good. His son died for me. He said, I want to lead you in worship. This dear college guy just begins to sing. And he starts to just proclaim, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. His son died for me. There's power in that. And his, and his classmates would respond. We love the Lord Jesus. Somebody would stand up and say, I love you, Lord Jesus. I do love you. Sometimes I doubt you, but I'm glad you're there. And, and reveal yourself to me. And they did that for like two hours, just singing one song after another. You know what really struck me? Because so many times, see, I've been raised in an environment where singing is warm-upping. really is. My environment was, I, I remember preachers used to sit there during the song service when I was a kid, and they go, oh, man. You know, the, especially the music, musicians went too long. They go, man. They'd look at me, go, they'd keep looking at their watch. And the idea was, let's get the, you know, get the side show off, get the warm-up show off so we can really have what's important. Oh, how wrong that is. I want you to realize that your praise is your very lifeblood of your soul. In fact, as I left that weekend, I was deeply refreshed, not by my teaching. My teaching really doesn't refresh me very much. It drains me. But when I left that weekend, I was deeply refreshed. You know why? Because those students really connected with God. Unashamedly, they adored him and loved him. And there's great power in that, more power than I think many of us realize. And that's what worship is. And that's what Moses is doing in his song. See, Moses begins by saying, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. You see, thousands of students at UT curse the name of the Lord. So what does a Christian student do? A Christian student doesn't curse the name of the Lord. He praises the name of the Lord, and that counterbalances that. And there's great, great power as we praise his name. So Moses says, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our rock. That's a praise song. Moses says, oh, praise the greatness of our rock. Now, the key phrase for God in the psalm is the rock. It's repeated over and over again. Verse 18, I think 30, 31, over and over again. You can check it through. It's repeated. This is a repeated refrain, the Lord is our rock. Now, I want to tell you something. The Canaanites believed that Baal was their rock. The Canaanite god Baal was the masculine uh, deity in the Canaanite pantheon. They called him the Great Mountain. They did the same thing in Babylon. They had one of their gods that was called the, the High Mountain. In other words, throughout the ancient Near East, there was an idea that God could be represented as a great rock. Why did they do that? What's the prudential? We'll find out how good their advertising is. Down to the centuries, since I was a little tiny kid, what's prudential symbol? The rock. And what do they present you? They show you the rock of Gibraltar. Now, they don't tell you that the rock of Gibraltar is slowly but surely washing away as the Mediterranean pounds upon it. But what did they use? You know, why didn't they say, join Prudential, the marshmallow insurance company? Why do, you, why do you call insurance companies the rock? Because you want to have security there. You want to have protection there. The whole idea of having insurance is to have a shelter 
in a storm. So if something happens, you're going to be taken care of. That's the symbolism of a rock. The Lord God of heaven needs to be your rock. He is the rock. And that's why Moses praises him, because he says, Lord God, you are our rock. You are our place of safety. You are the unchangeable one. You're the, the shelter in which we can hide. That's why we sing. All, that, this started a great tradition. We sing, Rock of Ages, what? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me do what? Let me hide myself in thee. Let the waters and the flood. What is it saying? The rock is a place that you can find shelter and protection. Down through the centuries, like when David wanted to get away from Saul, where did he run? Where did he run to? He ran to the rocks. He ran to the cliffs. He ran to the place where we could find safety. The Lord needs to be your rock today. And that's why we should praise him. We praise him as our rock, the one that's going to be our protector, the one that we can find shelter from the storms. He is a rock. His works are perfect. And all of his ways are just. No one else. You can say that about no one else. All of God's activities are, are, have integrity. The word there, perfect, means that all of that God does has integrity. If you're disillusioned with the political process, if I were to ask how many of you are disillusioned with politics in America, you'd all raise your hand, probably. And I bet you almost every single one of you has this week said something about how dastardly the political situation is. And you're real cynical about it. Well, you don't need to be cynical. The Bible tells us from beginning to end that man's, man's governments and man's attempts to solve things are going to be filled with undependability, are going to be filled with no integrity. But we have a rock, the one who's really ruling, the rock that's ruling over all the universe. You know what's true about him? He has total integrity. You'll never find a white water with Yahweh. You'll never find a water gate. Why do these guys all have trouble with water things? I don't know. You'll never find a, a, a water gate. The Lord God of heaven has total integrity. You can get to the deepest part of God's character and everything will be whole. Everything will be pure. That's what it means, that, he, that he's perfect. It means God in heaven has total integrity. The second thing that it says here is that all of his ways are just. That means that all of his ways are right. He always follows and he always acts consistent with his character and with his standards. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. He's upright and just as he. The word faithful means that you can rest your life upon him. And this all blends in with our rock. Our rock, our rock has integrity. Our rock is just. He's always right. Our rock is dependable. He's pure. He's upright. That's our rock and that's why we praise him. Now, what about the people? How are they going to respond? So we have the vertical relationship with God, adoration of the rock. Now let's look at what Moses says about the people. They have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? So we have God the rock. What's his people like? Just the opposite. God is their rock, their shelter, their protector. What's true of the people? From the very beginning, these people turn against him. These people reject him. Look what it says about him. It says they have acted, first of all, corruptly toward him. The word there is, is a word that we would probably translate it twistedness or perversion. See, one of the things that's true of our soul is that deep inside of every one of us, and this is what Paul develops in Romans 1 through 3, 
Every one of us have a crooked twistedness in our life. God is pure and just and upright, but we are corrupt. We have an innate tendency to move away from our rock and wander out into the storm, just like the sheep that go astray. To their shame, they're no longer his children. God says, if you're going to wander away from me, then I'm not going to claim to be your father anymore because you're a warped and a crooked generation. And then he bemoans the fact, why would you do this? Is this a way to repay the Lord? Oh, foolish and unwise people. What Moses is saying is that sin is just plain dumb. One of the things that you really need to get across about sinfulness is that sin and foolishness are all connected. Sin is a stupid thing. I'm not saying that you can't be cunning when you sin. Satan is an incredibly crafty person. Satan is someone that can, that can come up with incredibly complex schemes of how to sin and how to rebel against God. But in the long run, sin is just plain dumb. Very important to realize that. Because the Proverbs, in fact, Moses is really laying a foundation which is going to be developed in the whole book of Proverbs. As Proverbs begins to unfold, the foolish man and the wicked man are equal. They're both the same. Because if you sin, you're doing just plain dumb things. Just think of what Satan's doing. You think Satan knows where he's going to end up? Sure, he can read the end of the book of Revelation. Now, does it make any sense if you know that you're going to end up in the lake of fire? Does it make any sense to keep rebelling against the king that's ultimately going to destroy you? No. The war's over. But Satan irrationally and chaotically and foolishly keeps rebelling against God. It's just plain dumb. And all of sin, you can take any sin that you do, any sin that you do in the long run will turn out to be just plain dumb. Foolish. It'll be self-destructive. Proverbs says that over and over again. In other words, you get involved like in, in a life of crime. You start you know, getting money the easy way and stealing and everything else. Everyone knows deep in their soul, if you do that, you're going to self-destruct. It's dumb. You'll eventually be blown away. We had a guy at breakfast talk to us about when before he really got right with the Lord and when he was wandering away from the Lord, he got involved in the drug culture a little bit, just on the outside. You know, just a little bit. He was just, you know, helping make some drops. And then he, they, they would sell drugs from door to door. And they, they were just on the real veneer, just on the surface of it. He gave a drug shipment to one of his friends one day. The guy went to one of their partners they were involved with, and the partner blew the guy away, shot him three times. By the grace of God, the guy lived. One of the guys at breakfast would say, man, I wised up really quick. I realized what I was doing was just plain dumb. And that's what Moses wants us to realize. He wants every one of the kids to realize what we're learning from God's word can protect us. It keeps us from doing some really dumb, foolish things. And so if we want to follow the Lord, we're going, to, we're going to follow this life of wisdom instead of following a life of craziness. And so the Lord says, you're a foolish people. You're an unwise people. How are they unwise? Isn't God your father, your creator, the one who formed you and made you? Doesn't it make sense if God is the one who's fashioned us? If God's the one who gave us life in the first place, doesn't it make sense that we should follow him? that we should love him? Sure, you would expect that. But we have a tendency to wander away from him. Now, in the following verses, Moses begins to outline the history. One of the things I'd like all of you to do is I'd like you to think about your history with the Lord. 
I'd like you to go back today and I'd like you just to think back through the way the Lord has dealt with you. And ask yourself, has he been faithful to me? Has he been someone that I could count on? Has he been someone that told me the truth? Has he been a friend that was dependable? Look what he says. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain it to you. Moses can count on the fact that in, in ancient Israel there were a bunch of fathers and elders, older, mature men, that could pass on the traditions to the younger generation. It's why churches across the United States have Sunday school. You know what that's a time to do? It's for you as adults to pass on the traditions, the godly traditions, to the next generation. Do you realize how important that is? If you're an adult and you've known the Lord for more than five years, I want to ask you, who are the children or who are the young people that you're passing on the tradition to? And if you're not doing it, then you, need to, you really need to pray about it. You see, we're just kidding ourselves unless we're involved in passing on what we know as adults from the Word of God to the next generation. And you say, well, Dave, my life is kind of down right now. I don't really feel that close to the Lord. I just feel kind of out of it. I'm just overwhelmed with everything. You will feel overwhelmed out of it down until you start giving. And as your pastor, I'm just going to tell you, that's the way the Christian life is. What turns you on about Jesus is passing them on to somebody else. You want to get turned on? You got to get involved in someone else's life. And old Israel took it very seriously to pass on the truths, the history of the faith to the next generation. That's why I spend all, that's why I speak to young people so many times. It's why I went to Austin. I'll jump at a chance to speak to the younger generation. It's why we travel in the summertime. Because in a period of about four weeks, I can hit different groups of young people from all over the country. And I can multiply the opportunity that the Lord has to be able to communicate those traditions to the next generation. We're in a day, this adults, you really need to get a hold of this. Even Indian tribes, primitive Indian tribes, knew that there came a time when their sons were like 12 and 13. Their son went out on a quest. And the elders of the tribe would teach that young boy the traditions of their tribe. Even pagan Indians knew you need to pass on the traditions of this group to the next generation. What do we do? We work constantly. Our kids grow up in our homes. We feed them. We make them good and fat. We send them to school. We ship them off to everyone else. But we're not that concerned about passing on the traditions. I want to really challenge you about that. We've really got to turn that around. We've really got to turn that around. We need to create adults that want to be adults. And you say, well, man, the younger generation, they don't want to hear what we have to say. That's just not true. I share with you, those college kids last week, one of the things that they, they just ask constantly, one of the things they said is, you're 20 years, a little bit more than 20 years down the line from us. Tell us what it's like. Teach us what it's like. How did you find the will of God? How did you know what you should do? How did you know like, who to marry? The younger generation wants adults that will share openly, not speak down to them, but share one-on-one -on -one and one-on-two. They want someone that will pass on the traditions. And so I want to challenge you to get involved with it. You dear Sunday school teachers, I could never stress enough how much your Sunday school teaching means to Mary and I and this family. Thank you. And every one of you that have kids in Sunday school, don't take that for granted. Moses says, remember the days of old when the past generation was able to tell you 
they were able to explain to you what the Lord the Most High had done. Look at verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up the boundary of the people according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. The Lord is telling us there's a lot of debate about exactly what these verses mean, but somehow the Scripture is revealing to us that somehow the history of the nations, beginning in, in, in the Tower of Babel, as God divides the languages and people begin to move out, Somehow the history of the nations is all wrapped up with the history of the nation, the nation of Israel. Now that doesn't mean if you're not Jewish that you're outside the chosen people because in Christ everyone can become a chosen people. But in the Old Testament and then ultimately in the destiny of history, God has a special plan for Israel. In fact, if, you, if you're committed to the word of God over and over and over again, it tells us that God is not finished with his people Israel. And that's why they're back in the news again. That land that's between Egypt and Mesopotamia, the land of Canaan, somehow the nations have to deal with that land of Israel. It's like a tar baby. Man, you grab a hold of it, you get stuck. You grab a hold of it again, you get stuck. You just can't get unstuck from the nation of Israel. You know why? Because from a worldwide historical perspective, ultimately, the story of the nations is going to have to do with what God does with that nation of Israel. And somehow, the heavenly court has numbered out the nation, somehow related to the angelic court. And then Israel is the one, you see, all the other nations, it talks about, for example, the book of Daniel, that the kingdom of Babylon has an angel that's involved with the kingdom of Babylon. And Egypt is presented as having angelic forces that are related to the kingdom of Egypt. God is saying in this verse, my allotted inheritance, the one that I watch over, the one that I take care of, is the nation of Israel. And I believe that that's still continuing. And this psalm, this song that Moses is singing to us, is related to God's dealing with these special physical people called the nation of Israel. In verse 10, he begins to tell us about how he created them and how he formed Israel. As some of you say, well, Dave, how do I know that the Bible's true? How do I know that I should believe what you say and not believe what a Hindu says? You need to look at the history of Israel. Look at how they were formed. Look at how their destiny unfolded. If ever there's a people that witness to the providence of God, the hand of God, it's the history of the nation of Israel. Look how they began. It says, In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him, and he guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. In this paragraph, Moses pictures the children of Israel being protected and formed in the wilderness. According to the book of Deuteronomy, the nation was born out of Egypt, like a womb of Egypt. Egypt is like the mother's womb. Sinai is when they became a nation. And Sinai is in the midst of a horrible desert. I mean, it's barren, it's rugged, there's no rain there, there's no vegetation. It's just this barren, ugly wilderness that could not sustain life. And God is picturing him coming to this fledgling little infant that's unprotected, exposed to the elements, and God takes care of them. Just think of it. The children of Israel, like a nation of a couple million people, thrust out of the womb of Egypt, up around the Red Sea, down to that land, that, that little peninsula there, in this ugly, barren wilderness. What's going to happen to the people? 
Unless God protects them, unless God sustains them, they're going to self-destruct. That's what the history of the wilderness wanderings is. You see, God is the one who found this little fledgling child in the barren wilderness, and he's the one that gave them manna to eat. He gave them water to drink. What Moses is declaring is your existence depends upon God. And our existence, whether we realize it or not, also depends upon God. Why can times of prosperity become treacherous? Join us for the answer on our next encounter with the truth.